China is the greatest long-term strategic threat to the security in the 21st century. China is increasing its military capability at a very serious and sustained rate. China, I submit, cannot be considered anymore a lesser included case in this context. And I have no choice but to view China as a significant strategic threat and share Secretary Austin's assessment that China is the pacing threat for the nation and DOD at large. The United States' relationship with China is going through a major change right now. Across the political spectrum, policymakers are pushing for the United States to get tougher on China and combat what they see as its growing global power. This is even extended into the realm of nuclear weapons, where since the dawn of the nuclear age, the United States and Russia have always held the largest and most destructive nuclear arsenals. But now, several U.S. officials and policymakers claim that China, which has long possessed a nuclear arsenal only a fraction of the size of the United States, and enshrined the idea of reaching a level of minimum deterrence, is looking to change the nuclear balance of power. But are these claims true? How could the United States, which maintains a nuclear arsenal of thousands of nuclear weapons, be worried that its deterrent might be threatened by a nation that only possesses an estimated 350 nuclear warheads? Welcome to Nukes of Hazard, a podcast by the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, an analyst here at the Center and your host. Recent discoveries employing satellite imagery have shown that China is indeed greatly reinvesting in its nuclear deterrent, building some 200 new nuclear missile silos in the far western deserts of its territory. What does this mean for the hopes of global arms control and nonproliferation efforts? Does China really pose a threat to the United States' deterrent nuclear posture? And just what should we be doing to make smart decisions to fight back against a seemingly slippery slope towards a new nuclear arms race? We brought on Hans Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, which helped uncover these new nuclear developments in China, to discuss. Thanks, Hans, so much for coming on board today. We're really excited to talk to you. So I think it was earlier this year, our friends over at the James Martin Center discovered what looked to be like 119 uh, new Chinese nuclear missile silos under construction. And this has sort of sparked this this huge policy debate uh, in Washington. But now you and your partner, Matt Corder, have sort of made another incredible breakthrough discovery here. Can you tell us exactly what you guys found? Yeah, we found a second site that is in the early stages of construction. We can see that the first uh, the first silos construction didn't start until about March this year, uh, so it's very recent. But it's in, it's it's progressing at a rapid pace. But we could already see sort of a grid-like structure in the desert that outlines where they're building these facilities and sort of if you extrapolate from what's already in the ground, so to speak, we we estimate that this whole grid could eventually contain something in the order of 110 uh, silos, as well as support facilities of all sorts of, all kinds of support facilities and 
power plants and, and what have you. It's a, it's a big project. So it's located to the northwest uh, uh, of the site that was previously discovered near Yumen. This one is near a town called uh, Hami. But both of these sites, it's interesting, is up in, you know, in the northern part of the central Chinese desert. Uh, it is very um, remote. And what's unique about it is that these sites are further inland China than any other Chinese ICBM base. So it might tell you something about their objectives about putting something so far in, inside China to perhaps avoid they can, they're in reach of cruise missiles or future intermediate range missiles or things like that. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Interesting. So, so 110 potential new silos. It, now, does that necessarily mean 110 new nuclear missiles or 110 new nuclear weapons? Are those sort of uh, comparable estimates there? Yeah, so that's the big unknown. Uh, how will China operate these missile fields? If you take the way the United States and Russia operate their missile fields, they put silos in you know, all of them or almost all of them. Uh, in the United States, for example, we have currently 450 uh, silos, but uh, 400 of those are, are filled. And so you can imagine when China, is, when this is finished, which will take quite a number of years still before they're finished and operational, that China will choose to put perhaps uh, missiles in only some of them and then do what's been called a shell game where an adversary would not know which one of them was loaded with, with a nuclear uh, missile and so would have to expend a lot of warheads on trying to knock them all out. Uh, so there's some people who think that. There are other people, including government officials uh, we talked to, that don't share that view. They think that you know they're intended to put silos in almost all of them, if not all of them, but certainly the vast majority. And so it is. it remains to be seen. We don't know yet. And that the Chinese are not saying anything about it, of course. And the intelligence community here has not been specific about what they think uh, will happen. Uh, so right now we're in this stage where there are all sorts of theories about it. If they fill them all, then, of course, it is uh, the biggest uh, expansion of the Chinese uh, nuclear arsenal ever. No comparison. And, uh, and just to put things in perspective, China is now building more missile silos than Russia is operating <laughs> You know, Russia has been the largest nuclear adversary to the United States uh, all these years and used to have many more silos with missiles in them. But and they're now down to, you know, less than the Chinese are uh, working on. So this is this is not some little adjustment of the Chinese posture. This is a significant uh, change. Right. So the largest expansion of Chinese potentially the largest expansion of Chinese nuclear forces ever. Now, for years, Hans, you, you've been saying that that this is something to be concerned about, that every nuclear nation is sort of rapidly undergoing this process of upgrading its nuclear forces. So how does this fit into that overall picture that, that you've been painting here? Well, China has been modernizing its nuclear forces uh, in the phase theory now for, for quite some years, you know, in the mobile ICBM uh, and, and medium and intermediate range categories, they've been introducing new launchers, uh, new missile types. They've also, over the last 15 years, uh, fielded a new fleet of ballistic missile submarines and, uh, and things like that. So they're upgrading their uh, deterrence posture 
uh, have been doing that for a long time. And in that part of the posture was also an increase. So they've been gradually ticking up. But this is on top of that. And this is a uh, this is a project that in terms of launchers, if you count silos, <laughs> uh, include more launchers than they currently have. And so wh- why are they doing that? You know, it's, it's, it's a symbol for sure of what's happening in all the nuclear weapon states these days. After the end of the Cold War, there was sort of a feeling that there was a window for sure, an opportunity for a decade and a half, I would say, where the United States and Russia could significantly change the future of nuclear weapons, move rapidly to reductions, et cetera, et cetera, try to incorporate other nuclear armed states in reductions and so forth. But because of a variety of uh, uh, factors, relations have soured, tensions have increased. And when that happens, ideas, ideals about reductions, certainly elimination, tend to get flushed out. And so what's happening now is that all the nuclear weapon states, uh, all nine of them are modernizing, busy, and have been for years. And they are busy uh, not just sort of upgrading what they have, but also improving what they have and building more. So this is going in the wrong direction, of course, and that's the challenge for the international community. We know where this is ending up. if deterrence is the only thing that people have, this is the only interest people have with these things. It's going to produce more. It's going to produce more systems, more scenarios, increase uh, salience of nuclear weapons. Uh, We can see that certainly both in the Russian and U.S. front that those countries are rattling the nuclear sword more um, than they did in the past. And uh, We see significant expansion and changes in India, Pakistan, and certainly North Korea as well, uh, all these things. So this is a global problem, and it is a huge challenge for the international arms control and nuclear nonproliferation community. There are several important treaties, uh, most importantly, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, under which the five largest nuclear weapon states have promised to halt the nuclear arms race, (laughs) and negotiate in good faith to uh, the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. And so reductions have now stalled on a global scale, and we're seeing an uptick uptick that the nuclear arsenals of the nuclear weapon states on the planet is now uh, going up again. And so what is the nonproliferation community going to do about it? What's the arms control community going to do about it? Well, the first step, of course, is to address it and address it in the context of these treaties. And it is inconceivable to me that the nonproliferation treaty can continue to function the way uh, it has if nuclear weapon states are ignoring their obligations under the treaty and non-nuclear weapon states are getting more sour that they're, they're holding their side of the, the, the commitment, but the nuclear weapon state seems to be going about their business as they always have. And so this is a serious challenge for that, uh, that treaty, I think. Right. So the, the, let's get a little bit into more about sort of this change and in, in this change in signaling and in posture even that, that you've alluded to here. It's hard to say, well, you know, they're building almost 230 new silos. Are, like you said, are all those going to be filled with missiles? Are all of them going to have nuclear weapons? If so, how many? But like you said, this is more launchers than they currently operate. 
through your work, it's been assumed that China had a strategy of a minimum deterrence where they only really needed 300 or so nuclear weapons, that they needed the absolute minimum number in order to ensure that they felt like they had a deterrent relationship and that the others wouldn't attack them, right? So, so how do you think this signals a change with the Chinese strategy, with Chinese posture? And if so, what do you think is causing that? Uh, yes, I think it signals a change. The question is, what is the change? <laughs> and gradually, we'll get more information, of course, both in terms of what other intelligence communities think uh, the change means, but also perhaps some conversations and statements from Chinese officials down the road. I don't think, I don't expect we're going to see China officially go out and say, oh, no, no, we no longer have a a minimum deterrent posture (laughs) or something like that. I suspect they will continue to insist that they have a minimum deterrent posture compared to what Russia and the United States have. (laughs) But of course, if what you had 10 years ago was a minimum deterrent posture, then what you have in five years with 230 additional silos constructed and God knows how many road mobiles and what at a high number, that can't also be a minimum deterrence posture, certainly not that minimum deterrent posture. So I think it's more accurate to say that China may be uh, sort of evolving from a minimum deterrent posture to a medium, uh, medium deterrence posture, uh, like sort of, you know, half between what the other smaller nuclear weapon states have and what the two big ones, the United States and Russia, have. And so what does it mean for strategy? What does it mean for what China wants to accomplish with its nuclear weapons and its nuclear arsenal? And that's another question, of course. But yes, I do think that China is changing from a minimum deterrent posture to something else. Right. And we we saw at the end of last year when the Trump administration offered to engage the Chinese in New START talks, the Chinese essentially said, well, we still have a fifth of what you guys have. How about you lower your arsenal down to what we have and then we can talk, right? Yeah. Yeah, that has been China's policy for many decades. That has been the response for many decade, decades. And, uh, and of course, uh, the Trump administration's idea to get China involved was valid. It has to get involved. It, it, the question is how. And, of course, what the Trump administration did was that it fumbled uh, that attempt by turning it into sort of a public pressure and shaming show, you know, and try to force them to come in. And that is, of course, not how you get countries involved. And for the United States to persuade China and nudge China toward engagement in in arms control, it will have to come up with things it is willing to give to the Chinese in return for Chinese concession. We haven't heard that articulated from U.S. officials yet. It's just like China needs to get involved. That needs to be more transparent. That needs to be limitations are, okay, yeah, but... So how, (laughs) where are we going to go with this? And so China is not interested, as it is of now, uh, uh, in numerical limits on their nuclear forces, because they rightly say that they have a lot less than (laughs) Russia and the United States. Uh, And from their perspective, that means that the United States and Russia will have to reduce first before uh, China gets involved. And that, by the way, is also the case uh, or would be the case for for France and Britain as well. I mean, for them to get involved in arms control as well. It's hard to imagine they would do that given the enormous superiority the United States and Russia have on nuclear forces. 
so that's how it looks, right? But that's not how it looks from Russian planners and, and, and U.S. planners, you know, because there's no way I can imagine they would reduce their nuclear forces to what China has. I mean, if the U.S. had to reduce its forces to to toward the Chinese level, well, um, then suddenly you would have two adversaries out there, Russia and China, and whatever else could happen, that could outmatch you. Is that the right way to go? Is that creating stability? All these things. That's a big step to take. And so that is as hard to make the U.S. do that as it is to get China involved in arms control. <laughs> right. So... So the question is how to break this knot. And I think you have, there's no other way than try to do this in, in a gradual fashion where countries come up with and accept limitation on forces and behaviors that are not only in their own interest, but also in the interest of their adversaries. <laughs> this is a tough one to swallow. The problem we have right now is policy toward China on the military level is so focused on deterrence. It's sort of a monotype of posture, if you will, where it's all about threatening and, and overwhelming and be able to, to win. And that's what drives it. And I don't, I think deterrence by itself is dangerous because if it's only about threatening, well, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get what the Chinese are doing. So the deterrence posture has to change. It has to become a sort of a grand strategy posture. It has to be one in which Deterrence is one component of it, but an equal component is uh, the effort to try to intelligently, consistently, and persistently involve, have come, involve the Chinese, have conversation with the Chinese, first perhaps starting with sort of soft arms control, if you can call it that, sort of a, a confidence-building measures, agreements about rules of the road, vague disclosures of, of future force structure plans, these types of things, something that gradually, gradually builds up not only a cadre of agreements and norms, but also a cadre of officials in the government who are confident and, and, and capable of handling these issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the problems right now with the Chinese. They just don't have a cadre of officials that that seems to be set up to be able to deal with these kind of numerical arms control type stuff. So um, they're not interested. And so we're not going to get them to do this. We have to start gradually with these other issues I I, I talked about. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I, you brought up something interesting here that I want to dig down into, the, this idea of sort of unrestrained deterrence, right? Um, you've discussed the idea of, of perception of one's opponent being tied to your own modernization plans, right? Which which seems like a basic idea, but it leads to all of these crazy things happening. So one country feels that it, it no longer has a surety and it's deterrent, so it builds new submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and and that causes its opponent to say, oh, well, now our targets, or now our missiles are vulnerable. We need to build road mobile systems, and we're seeing in Asia, sort of writ large here, with Russia, China, Pakistan, and India is becoming a, a denser and denser sort of nuclear space, right? And so I'm curious, we've seen we've seen Russians starting talking about building exotic weapons. China is building all these new silos. I'm curious where you think all of this is headed because at a certain point, there are going to be errors involved or mistakes involved. And, and that is, is a dangerous thing to sort of think about. <laughs> no kidding. And if things go wrong, of course, it can go a lot more wrong with 
a thousand nuclear weapons than than three hundred nuclear weapons. Of course, I mean they will hit something. That means cities. It means bases. It means people, civilians dying. So you know, nuclear catastrophes will always be significant, but with more nuclear weapons, a lot more significant. And so there's nothing new in a way about this. Ever since the dawn of the nuclear age, the one central theme that has characterized how countries behave is modernizing, is improving capabilities. It is getting the upper hand. It is outmatching. It is winning. It is that competition. That is the the fuel in the machine. That's the interest that is still going on. You can turn up the intensity of that dynamic depending on the crisis feeling in the world. Right now, that intensity is rapidly increasing. And so there's nothing new about modernization and there's nothing new about nuclear competition, but there's definitely a new situation uh, now in terms of how it is being applied. We see this clear shift after the sort of relaxation on this issue after the end of the Cold War that now we're back in that naughty game. And uh, so nuclear weapons are moving more in the forefront again. And so with this comes with more nuclear weapons, more capabilities, better capabilities, come new ways or maybe different ways of thinking about their potential use. So when countries modernize their forces, weapons become more accurate. When they become more accurate, you don't need as high yield. When you get lower yield, you begin to think about potential use of these weapons in different ways than when they had very high yield, because collateral damage will be a lot less. Out of the, that may even come mini nukes that have such small yields that you begin to think of them sort of as sort of tactical warfighting weapons. So this can go in all sorts of bad uh, directions. I, I got to say, Hans, you, you paint a very bleak picture. I mean, this idea of the nuclear landscape is is not only getting more numerous with new players and new weapons, but that also the, the options for nuclear use, this idea of the less than deterrent nuclear strike, the taking us back to the 50s and 60s, where, where there's nuclear weapons that are sort of to augment battlefield conventional sort of roles. That's a really scary environment to think of. And, and of course, we've, right. we've seen some of these weapons start to come back into the U.S. arsenal, sort of potentially. The W-76-2, the new nuclear sea launch cruise missile that's being developed right now or being debated in Congress right now. It seems like everything is sort of going backwards, right? We had made some progress. There was, like you said, there was sort of hope on the horizon that we could mitigate some of these factors and that it's we've sort of taken a step back now and that things are coming back on the table that people once thought were unthinkable again. So I'm curious, ever since you guys made this discovery, I think Stratcom yesterday uh, retweeted your work and said, look, see, we've been telling you that China are bad actors forever now. You should have believed us. This is why we need more nuclear weapons in order to maintain deterrence, right? I'm curious, what do you think is an appropriate response to this? I mean, it seems like everybody is saying, well, this is exactly the evidence that we needed to show that we're right. And this is why we need more nuclear weapons. And this is why we need more nuclear missions so that we can hold new forces accountable. And and that seems like it has the real potential for snowballing there. So, so I mean, what is what is a rational sort of response to information like this? Yeah. So a rational response to this, of course, is not about more nuclear weapons. 
It's hard to say what more nuclear weapons would give us. The US already has an overwhelming nuclear capability vis-a-vis China and also a matching capability against Russia, of course. And so I don't necessarily think there is an appetite in the US military for more nuclear weapons. I think sort of the low-yield W76-2 and the Tomahawk sea launch, well, not Tomahawk, but the sea launch cruise missile, whatever name is going to get, they are sort of, they're sort of examples of introducing a little extra, but without being sort of enormously serious about it. <laughs> they're called supplements, right? Sort of some odd add-on to the, to the stockpile. But, and, and, and in terms of the W76, the, the low-yield warhead on the Trident, you know, there's some people in the military who sort of laugh about it and they call it a Washington weapon, like a sort of a weapon that, that was invented politically, right? It has no military uh, uh, necessity. But, um, but the a re- appropriate response to this, I mean, I can't imagine what more nukes will, will give us uh, vis-a-vis China. And the reason is we've always had more nukes vis-a-vis China, <laughs> a lot more nukes vis-a-vis China. That didn't force them to stand down or back down or change their ways or whatever. <laughs> it, If anything, uh, the capabilities that we've been pointing at them uh, are important factors in why they decided to posture their nuclear forces the way they do and why they're making improvements that we now see. There are several of those factors. It's not just something I say. We have it from testimony from the Central Intelligence Agency that when the United States started deploying uh, the Trident ballistic missile submarine uh, in the Pacific, the Chinese concluded that their silos were at risk, would be, would be at risk, and began the program to develop uh, solid fuel ICBMs that we are now seeing uh, coming uh, online. Likewise, when the U.S. deployed the ballistic missile defense system or, or pulled out of the Uh, ABM treaty and and started developing ballistic missile capabilities, the Chinese and the Russians. But the Chinese also said, well, you you understand, of course, that if somewhere down the line you you get missile defense capabilities that can threaten our minimum deterrent, then we will have to take steps in order to overcome those effects. That's not to say that what China is doing is the United States' fault. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. There are many factors that are playing into this, but what the United States is doing, what India is doing, what Russia is doing, all feed into the Chinese perception of what they need to have. And, and so one has to think about that if you think about what is an appropriate response. If the objective of the response is trying to fix this, <laughs> meaning stop the Chinese from building up more, be more transparent of what kind of force posture they have and what the role of their nuclear weapons is. If that is the objective of that response, then you have to engage them. And you have to have a deterrent, uh, of course, to some extent, but you also have to be careful that your deterrent is not so vibrant and threatening that it triggers more of these bad uh, developments and, and makes it easy for hardliners in China to argue that they need more and better nuclear weapons. How to set that up? What are the building blocks of that response will take quite some time to develop. But right now, China, even though China militarily is the threat, (laughs) at least in the discussions and the papers and what have you, 
and Russia, also significant, of course, but seems to be sort of sort of losing some of their stardom uh, from the past in, in U.S. strategy and, and thinking. The Chinese is quite clearly the focus because of the potential of what it can turn into. So, so it is somewhat surprising, given that has been the case, that we still have so little practical at play that uh, that is trying to engage the Chinese. You know, there have been conversations with the Chinese or attempt to do it. It's been hard, all these types of things. But we need to put a lot more effort into that part of the response to try to get them engaged and and, and built on that to perhaps get some agreements, starting from the softer stuff I talked about earlier, uh, gradually moving into sort of uh, more significant types of, of limitations. Absolutely. So uh, a final question for you here, Hans, is is that you have long been sort of a, a champion of open source intelligence when, when looking at nuclear weapons. And so I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit about how you all, this is sort of going back to the beginning, but how you all found this essentially mm-hmm. and, and what you think the importance of open source research is on sort of providing transparency in what's going on in the world. Because like you said, nations, governments are very reluctant to provide any information at all about what's happening with their nuclear posture or their nuclear arsenals. So what is the importance of organizations like yours providing transparency for exactly what is going on in the world with the world's most dangerous weapons? So when we found this, we've, of course, been monitoring Chinese nuclear forces for many years. But the key instrument that made this possible, of course, is commercial satellite imagery. In this particular case, it was because we had access, we've been given access to a Planet Labs feed of, of satellite photos. And, you know, they're very useful for searching large areas. And big missile fields in China these days tend to go into desert areas that are very easy to find. <laughs> I mean, these patterns, these grid patterns, they stand out like a sore thumb uh, from space. Uh, so it's not that the Chinese are trying to keep anything secret here in terms of building these forces. They want the world to see them. But um, but we didn't look just in you know in blind out there. We we have been monitoring a site up in the further east, northeast, uh, near a, a city called Jilantai, which is a training area for the People's Republic uh, Rocket Force, uh, the Chinese People's Republic uh, Rocket Force, um, where we have been monitoring over the last four years or so, five years, how new missile systems are sent up there to train to for the troops to integrate, to learn how to operate them, and et cetera. And we noticed a couple of years ago that they started building new silos there. The first four were sort of of a certain kind of had a garage over the hole, not, not, a, not a dome that we see now. But then uh, last year, uh, or the year before that, we started seeing these domes go up uh, in another park. And, and it seems that there are, they are silos. Uh, they have not taken off the domes yet there. We have seen them go off elsewhere, so we're pretty certain that they're silos. But then we heard, of course, Stratcom or the Department of Defense responding to our discovery and including in the, in the 2020 annual report on on Chinese military developments. Um, <laughs> and they didn't mention us by name, but they did explain that they thought China was working with several constructs for how to structure its uh, uh, missile forces, uh, silo-based missile forces for solid-based, uh, solid-fuel ICBMs. 
or whatever they want to put in there. So we know what to look for. So we essentially took that and, you know, that memory bank and went browsing across China. And we were also looking, of course, when uh, when the Middlebury Institute, they um, found the site out near Yumen. And they're like, oh, okay, so that's going to what it's going to look like uh, if, it's, if it's a real force, like not just in a training area, but an actual uh, deployment. But we, we knew that there was more. We were told that in so many words from government officials. Uh, keep looking. <laughs> but they wouldn't tell us exactly where it was, of course. They couldn't. So my colleague, Matt Quarter was playing around, you know, one evening uh, with this stuff. And we're like, kaboom, there they are. They look exactly like Jilantai and, and Yuman. And, and so we immediately got hold of uh, higher resolution imagery uh, from Planet and started analyzing, you know, what they look like and compare with the other places. We wrote up our analysis uh, that had to go along with it. And we called the New York Times and said, are you interested in doing a story on this? And they were. And uh, Monday afternoon or evening, the article was up. So, you know, there goes that weekend. <laughs> that was such a busy find and production, and, and now it's out. The importance, of course, is that for countries to develop sane and reasonable nuclear policies and national security policies, there has to be an informed public debate. I mean, if governments entrust their citizens with the right to vote them in and out of office, they also have to entrust them with the ability to discuss what is a reasonable nuclear uh, posture and how we should, should we use them potentially, or how should we not use them. So transparency is enormously important for that part of the democratic process. It underpins everything else we do in society. <laughs> accountability, information, uh, et cetera. And I think it's very important for the reasons I mentioned about transparency before. Now this issue is in the public. We can discuss this. We can look at it. We can think about what it means. We can hypothesize about how we think the Chinese might operate this site. This is not just a piece of information that government officials with access can then go and talk to Congress about when they ask for more nuclear weapons. <laughs> this is also a piece where they are being drawn out into the public because they're being asked questions now about what are these sites about? What does it mean, et cetera? So by that, we're slowly prying open sort of the secrecy box, getting more information into the public domain about what is going on. And we can ask questions to the State Department saying, given what's going on, what is your strategy? How are you going to engage the Chinese on this? Ask other countries, officials in other countries like Japan, what do you think about it? Uh, how does that affect your thinking about these? So there's so many layers that are enhanced and improved by disclosing these uh, developments in public. So yes, those are important reasons for why we do this and for why we think it's important to continue to pry open uh, the secrecy of, uh, you know, nuclear force uh, structures, because uh, it's important stuff if it goes off. And uh, we better get it right. Outstanding. Thanks, Hans. Fantastic. No, thanks for having me. So I think this is a fascinating real-time case study in nuclear modernization. This is the largest expansion of Chinese nuclear forces ever. 
possibly fueled in part by the continued development of U.S. missile defense technology and the rapidly evolving nuclear arsenals that are right on China's doorstep. We must remember that, like Han said, it's not just the Chinese who are building new missiles. The United States is also set to spend nearly $2 trillion on its nuclear arsenal over the next 30 years, and every other nuclear nation is following suit. To be frank, this is how global arms races happen. Even before the public discovery of these new silos, politicians and military leaders were clamoring for new ways to stand up to China. Now it seems like if top policymakers are not careful, there is a real possibility that the United States might militarize its foreign policy towards China, which would be an enormously bad idea. But there are some even larger questions at stake here. Like Hans alluded to, the United States has always had more nukes than China. But that alone has never stopped any adversary from building more weapons. The threat of nuclear annihilation hasn't forced pure adversaries from backing down. Instead, it drives them to seek a counter. So building more U.S. nuclear weapons, as some policymakers are calling for, when we already have a significant nuclear edge on the Chinese, is unlikely to cause the Chinese to change their behavior. Instead, it will only serve to fan the flames of the growing global nuclear arms race. What has worked in the past? Steady, verifiable arms control negotiations. When it comes to nuclear weapons, locking ourselves into a cycle of fear and response is a dangerous proposition, and we should not let ourselves sleepwalk into a new global nuclear arms race. The United States already has enough nuclear weapons. Instead, we must push for more transparency, diplomacy, and confidence-building measures if we hope to avoid a crippling arms race with more nukes on hair-trigger alert. We were lucky to survive the last nuclear cold war, one in which there were only two players at the table. The next time might not turn out as well. Thanks for tuning in. Nukes of Hazard is hosted by me, Jeff Wilson, and produced by Rowan Humphreys. Be sure to follow the center's work on Twitter and Instagram at nukes underscore of underscore hazard, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash arms control center. You can also email us at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. And of course, if you like what you hear, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.